Storytelling is one of the most powerful means that we have to influence, to teach, and to inspire. Uh, Storytelling builds connections between people as well as people and ideas. Uh, We we know that that stories reveal our history, they reveal our culture, they reveal our values. Uh, And and we know that, that when it comes to community and family, the stories that we all share... They, they play a big role in the ties that, that bind us together. Uh, this, this was not lost on the people in Jesus' day either. Uh, parables were a, a very common form of teaching, and Jesus, uh, a master craftsman, if you will, when it came to teaching through parables. And so, in Luke 15, we find Jesus is eating with sinners, as the Pharisees say. Uh, when, when the Pharisees call someone a sinner, the idea is this is someone who has willingly chosen to separate themselves, for whatever reason, from God's uh, community, from, from God's people. And, and so uh, Jesus' response to these Pharisees is this three-in-one parable with each story building on the teaching of the previous and, and basically, his response is, you're right, uh, I am. Uh, and, and so this is, this is where we will pick up, uh, starting in verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Uh, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So real quickly, what we learn from this story. Uh, we... we <coughs> We know that this, this imagery of, of shepherds and sheep, they have a rich history uh, in the Old Testament. It would have drawn to mind some passages. Remember, he's, he's speaking to Pharisees. They know their stuff. It would have drawn to mind some, some Old Testament passages, among them likely Ezekiel 34. And Ezekiel 34 builds on this, as well as Jeremiah 23, with the idea of, of good shepherds and bad shepherds. Uh, we know Psalm 23 speaks of the Lord as our shepherd, and, and they, they seem to be building off of this as Israel's leaders aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, and, and so we, we have the, this, this idea of bad shepherds introduced, uh, shepherds who scatter the flock. And in Ezekiel 34, he shows us that the Lord himself will come and take this flock away from these bad shepherds, and he will be the shepherd. He will go out and seek the lost sheep and bring them back. And the word that Ezekiel uses there for, for bring back is it's shub, which, which basically means to return. It's, it's the, the, the word that uh, is used in Hebrew for repentance, for restoration. And so uh, this, this already kind of sets the tone for what, what Jesus is about to say in this, this story. And what we cannot miss in the first parable is this. The lost will not come home on their own. Uh, They're lost. If they weren't lost, they would come home. Uh, 
they're lost. They don't come home on their own. Don't expect them to. Someone has to go seeking. Uh, the shepherd seeks out the sheep. And once he finds the sheep, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, walk with the sheep. He puts the sheep on his shoulders. He is ensuring that this sheep returns home. And he makes the trek back through the wilderness. And when he returns home with the sheep, the community celebrates. And this is something we see throughout all three stories. The community celebrates when the lost returns. Let's go ahead and jump to the next story. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before angels of, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, again, these stories build off of one another. And we see uh, that there are two truths that, that's added to this, this teaching that Jesus has begun with the shepherd story. Uh, and, and the first one being the woman's admittance. Uh, how did the coin get lost? She lost it. Uh, the, the, the blame for, for the losing of the coin falls on the woman. Uh, she lost the coin. The coin didn't lose itself. And so, uh, realizing she's lost it, she then begins searching diligently. Uh, the houses then, they, they weren't anything and still aren't really anything like we have today. Uh, back then, you, you may have had a few slits for ventilation up top, and that was about it. So it's a very dark house, and she's searching it with a lamp that is probably not giving off just a whole lot of light. Uh, so it's this great effort from this woman, just like there was great effort from the shepherd to find what they lost. And I say they because the shepherd loses the sheep. Now, we may, you may want to argue that, okay, well, but sheep are prone to wandering. Yes, but if the shepherd returns to the owner with 99 sheep, who's getting blamed for losing the one? It's not the sheep's fault, it's the shepherd's. And so they search diligently for what is lost. The second truth that we see uh, added to this is the value of the lost. It never changes. The value of, of, of that which is lost never changes. It was a day's wages when she had all ten together. It was still a day's wages when she lost it. And it was still a day's wages when she found it. The value of the lost does not change because it is lost. It still holds great value. And, and when we think of this, okay, so the lost don't return on their own. The lost have not somehow become less valuable. All right, now let's, let's remove money from this. We're not talking money, we're talking souls, right? How much more valuable are we talking about here? Uh, we have to go seeking the lost because they will not return home on their own and they still hold great value to the one who owns them. We must go seeking which brings us to our third story. 
And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. So this, this story can basically be broken down into two acts. Act 1 is the father finding his younger son. Act 2 is the father finding his older son. It's also important to note, there are five instances in this story where the father does something completely unexpected. Uh, and, and, and if we don't realize this, we're going to miss some important things in this story. Five times the father does the unexpected uh, compared to the uh, Middle Eastern culture of that time. Uh, the first one takes place in verse 12. The younger son comes to his father and demands his inheritance while the father is still living. Uh, to, to let you know how big of an insult this is, uh, imagine your child walks up to you and says this, I really wish you would just go ahead and die so that I could take your money. Because that's what he does. The father is still living. This is an unthinkable and outrageous request by the son. To ask for your father's inheritance while he is still living and standing right in front of you. Now, Middle Eastern culture would have said, you strike the boy, you drive him from his home, and that request obviously gets ignored. But that is not what happens. The father grants his son his request. And not only that, there's more unthinkable with this. The father then allows him to sell those things. Because it's, it's not liquidated, right? It's just, it's just land and, and sheep or cattle or whatever it is that they have. Uh, so who is he selling it to? The community. And so now, again, we're, we're dealing with an honor-shame culture. Uh, this has just become very public. And shame has now come on this entire family uh, by the son's actions. Community plays an important part of the story. They're just off stage the whole story until the very end, but they're there, and they play an important part. Uh, not only does the son sell these possessions to the community, and, and not only does he flee pretty quickly. Again, it's just a, a few days later, he's, he's, he's going. He's going quickly because the community is outraged. They are not happy with him. And so he doesn't want to stick around. He gets his stuff And he goes. And we also know the community is a big part of this because he won't come back. And I say he won't come back because we know there is this this ceremony during Jesus' day. Uh, And Jesus is most definitely, he has this ceremony in mind as he's telling this story. It's it's called the Kezuzah ceremony. It's a shame ceremony. And the way this whole thing works, so if a son takes his father's inheritance, okay, obviously we're, we're already tracking there, 
Uh, and he goes off and loses that inheritance to Gentile people. Uh, he will then face this ceremony, should he dare show his face again. And, and what happens is, if the, the boy returns empty-handed, the community takes these burnt corn husks, and they, they break them in front of them, and they announce, basically, you're dead to us. Uh, you're cut off from your people. And from that moment on, the entire community is done with that individual. Uh, he will not receive any help from them. And so what do we see with the younger son? Takes his father's inheritance, goes off to a far country, presumably Gentile. He's herding pigs, uh, so it's certainly not Jewish. Uh, and he squanders it by uh, living expensively and extravagantly. He has now lost his inheritance to the Gentile people, and he cannot go home empty-handed. Or he faces the ceremony. So, the plan, all right, well, uh, the famine's hit, I'm hungry, I've squandered everything, let me go work for some of these people, and they put them to work in the fields. The only problem with that plan is, no one gives them anything. And he's hungry, and he can't go home. Picking up in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I think this is where we most likely get tripped up in this story. Uh, He came to himself, Jesus says. Uh, Traditionally, I think we interpret this as he came to his senses, because that's how we make sense of this. Uh, But I I don't think that is the correct interpretation here, Uh, and and here's, here's why. So if he comes to his senses, if the idea is he repents in this far country, uh, that is, that is the, the shub that Ezekiel speaks of, the repentance, the, the, the restoration. But that's not at all what we see in the first parable or in the second parable, and it's not at all what we see with what Ezekiel and Jeremiah talk about. Uh, the son is lost. He's lost. He cannot make it home on his own. He has to be found. The the sheep contributed nothing to being found. It was all on the shepherd to go out and find it. The lost coin contributed nothing to being found. It was all the woman who did the seeking and finding. And the lost son needs someone to come find him. So this is not a a genuine uh, repentance here. Uh, I think it's better translated, he returned to himself. 
And again, the, these ideas of, of the Old Testament passages come in mind. Uh, in, in Psalm 23, it is the Lord who returns David to himself. And in Jeremiah 23, and in Ezekiel 34, it is the Lord who returns the people to the land. Who does the Son return to? Not to God, not to the land, but himself. Meaning, I have one more idea. I have one last plan to earn my redemption. To earn back the favor of my father and my family and my community. If, if he gains repentance, true repentance in the far country, it's the exact opposite story of what he's just told. And Jesus has no clue what he's doing. That's obviously not the case. So we have this, this instance where the son uh, once again relies on himself. And he begins to, to unfold this plan. I will return home to my father, not as a son, but, but to gain skill, to gain training. Uh, he, he, his, his idea is to, to go home and be a hired servant. Hired being the key word there. He's still planning to earn back what he's lost and to be able to put something in his belly because he's hungry. And so this, this plan of his completely overlooks the ultimate problem of, uh, of a broken relationship over a broken law. And this, this idea of his is just another uh, opportunity for him to manipulate his father. His father is a tool to, to, for him to get what he wants. And in case we miss that and uh, realizing that he's insincere, there's one more clue that Jesus gives. And again, Pharisees would have picked this up. Because this comes from one of their most important stories. Uh, when he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Now, face value, that sounds awesome. That sounds great. That sounds genuine. That sounds like he has really changed his mind. But in the story of Israel, uh, there is uh, this, this story in Exodus. The plagues are already taking place. Uh, the ninth plague has just happened. Pharaoh can't take it anymore. He's been refusing to meet with Moses, and now he's agreed to meet with him. But here's, here's Pharaoh's plan. He's going to meet with Moses to manipulate Moses to get his God to lift the plagues. And so Moses arrives to meet Pharaoh, and Pharaoh greets Moses with, I have sinned against the Lord your God and you. Almost the same words come out of the, the younger son. And so this is yet another hint. This is not a sincere repentance by the son. Not yet. Uh, he's still scheming. He's still planning. He's still trying to earn it himself. And so he returns home. And this is where this, the story gets kind of interesting to me because it seems the father knows he's going to fail. Uh, the father is waiting for him. Looking out, you can imagine he's looking out over the village from his balcony just waiting for his son to show up on the horizon. He also knows what awaits his son should he return empty-handed as he suspects. And he also has a plan. If the father can reach the son outside of the village, 
before the son can come into the community, he can spare the son their wrath. But it's going to come at great cost of the father. Again, this is a shame, honor, culture. It's going to require the father to be self-emptying and taking on humiliation that no man of that time would dare do. But this father does. The father had already faced shame in breaking the long-held traditions of inheritance. Uh, He will now face humiliation a second time because he runs to his son. Uh, This may seem odd. This is shameful that he's running to his son. Uh, Children could run. Women could run. They didn't often, but they could. Men don't run, not in public. I, I get the reason being is they would have to lift the robe up to run and it would expose their legs and somehow that brought shame. Uh, men didn't run. Uh, but he does here. And in doing so, what happens is the, sh- the, the focus shifts off of the empty-handed son returning. And now it's on this dignified man running through the streets like a child. Uh, what is he doing? They're not paying attention to the son who has nothing. They're paying attention to this dignified person now humiliating himself. And he runs to his son and he throws his arms around him and he accepts him and he kisses him and he takes him back all before the son can say a word. All before the son can begin to enact his plan. All before the son has a chance to manipulate his father to get what he wants The father gives this costly love to his son as a prelude to his confession. And so the son, overwhelmed by this uh, demonstration from his father, we see now experiences a genuine moment of repentance. It's not that he forgot what he was going to say. It's not that the father interrupted him. If you noticed, he, doesn't, he leaves out that last part because that's his plan. That's his scheme to save himself. He has repented. And he is now willing uh, to, to no longer try to save himself but allow his father to find him. He accepts being found by his father. Picking up in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of, them servant, uh, one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But, when he, was, uh, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting that we celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
so what do we make of this banquet? Because that, that's, that's kind of where we are in this story. Well, there's, there's three interpretations of what this banquet means. The first two are the same. Uh, the first two being the father's interpretation and the servant's interpretation, which represents the community's uh, understanding. And that is, we are celebrating the father's successful efforts in finding his lost son and achieving reconciliation, achieving shalom, uh, their word for peace, uh, with the son. Restoring back that relationship. That's what this is about. However, this is not uh, what the older brother understands it to be. He sees this as a party celebrating his irresponsible younger brother, where his, his brother is the hero because he made it back. So what do we do here? Uh, which, which, which interpretation do we go with? Uh, again, the older son thinks this banquet is, is about the son when in, uh, the community understands it to be about the father. Well, uh, if, if uh, we, we look at the, uh, the response of the servant, he says, your, your father has uh, welcomed him back. He, he's, he's uh, I can't remember the exact wording, safe and sound, I think is what the translation says. Uh, peace is really the word there. Uh, and again, shalom, the idea of reconciliation, it's complete. It's final. It's over. Your brother's back. Uh, the older son is angry because he had to endure shame that the younger brother brought. He had to take on shame from his brother because of what he did. And he wanted to weigh in on what happened to his brother for what he, he had done to him. And when the servant tells him he's been received in peace, that's what angers him. He doesn't get to weigh in. He does not get to have a say because the father has achieved reconciliation. He has restored the son. The son has repented and he does not have to pay for his sins as the older brother wants him to. This is what angers the older brother. And this is what causes the older brother to sever his relationship with the father who achieved reconciliation with the younger son. For a son to be present at a father's banquet and not go in is an unspeakable public insult. It would be like uh, your son getting into a huge yelling match with you in front of family and friends at some celebration. Uh, that level of embarrassment, that, that's what this is. Uh, he refuses to go in. And the older son's rejection of his father's reconciliation with the prodigal leads to this severance of a relationship with his father. So uh, we see the father break norm again. Uh, what would have been expected is for the father to continue on, ignore the son until after the banquet, and then deal with the son afterwards. But that's not what he does. He goes out and he entreats his son, he, he pleads with his son. And that's when the son begins to rip into his father. That's when the son begins to rip into his brother. And for 
the final time we see the father break tradition because what would have been expected of the father is for him to explode and order a thrashing for the son and be done with him. And so what we see here is both sons are offered costly grace by the father. Both sons are shown this this, uh, extravagant demonstration of love both to the younger son and to the older son. This father is more than a picture of a good father. He is a symbol of God and ultimately a symbol of Jesus and what he has done in our lives. And if the older son accepts the father's offer, if the older son accepts the the father's offer to come into the banquet, he will then have to begin treating his younger brother with the same love and compassion the Father has treated him. And so the question arises, will the son go into the banquet and begin learning to behave like his father? Notice, that's where it ends. Act 2 does not have a conclusion. Uh, Act act 2 is left purposefully open by Jesus, as if to say, your brother awaits you. In the, in the celebration, what are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with me? This story is left open because it's up to the, the hearers or the readers to determine its ending. Now, in this specific instance, Jesus has placed the Pharisees on stage up front and center, and it is up to them to decide in that moment, uh, what are we going to do? But as we read this today, it places us up front and center. And it forces us to, at, to answer the same questions uh, of, of all three stories. Are we waiting on the lost to return on their own? Or are we seeking them out, even at great expense to ourselves? Do we realize the value of the lost? Or have we fallen into this falsehood that they are somehow less valuable because they are lost? And even tougher, have we contributed to the lost being lost? Either by something directly such as something we said or did, or indirectly by not going and seeking Are we still trying to earn our way back into the good favor of our Father? Are we still scheming to right our wrongs and in that process failing to realize that the bigger problem is not the broken law but the broken relationship? Are we willing to accept being found by our Father? Our prodigal brothers and sisters await us at the celebration. What will we do with them? What will we do with Jesus? Our answers affect those around us. How we choose to answer these questions affect the people in our lives. Maybe some of you have a prodigal that you're seeking after. And how you answer these questions will go a long way in how that all unfolds. 
Maybe some of you are the prodigal. And again, how you answer these questions will help determine how your story unfolds. And if you are among the lucky who are not the prodigal or have a prodigal that you have to go seek, know that your response to these questions still matters because you make up the community. And the community celebrates the return of the lost. The community is what the prodigals return to. And in these stories, the community always celebrates the lost. Luke 15 begins and ends with sinners at a table eating a meal with Jesus. Jesus at great cost seeks out the lost, seeks out the sinners, those who have separated themselves from the community of God's people. Will we join the celebration that is taking place in honor of him? Anytime we come together as a community of believers, we want to offer an invitation. And, and maybe, again, you, you have a prodigal in your life that you are seeking. And maybe it's, it seems like it's not going the way you want. And what you need most is encouragement and strength and prayers from your community. Uh, we have elders that uh, are, are here uh, and we'll have two down front. We'll have a lot of them lining the walls that will gladly shepherd you through these tough times. And, and maybe you are more in line with the prodigal. And you're done scheming. And you're ready to accept being found by Christ. And put His name on in, in baptism. Whatever your need is, uh, the celebration is ready. The only, the only thing left to answer is, what are we going to do? Whatever your need is, uh, come now and let us help you as, as we stand and as we sing.